reading from 2 Kings chapter 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. The word of the Lord. In our assurance of pardon this morning, as we were worshiping earlier, we read from John 17, where Jesus says, They are not of this world, as I am not of this world. And in that prayer, he's talking about you. He's talking about you, that you do not belong to this world, and that you are displaced. You are in a place that you don't belong, and that ultimately you are an exile. Is that a way that you consider your life? That you are an exile? Or do you live your life in a way that you feel as though you belong here? When Jesus says in the scriptures talk about exile, is it just simply the fact that we don't maybe live where we are from? No, there's a much deeper reality to what the Bible means when it talks about exile. And as I was thinking about it this week, I remembered a a picture I came across uh, months ago. It's really a powerful picture of what uh, the scriptures talk about when they talk about exile. This is a plane crash in Iceland. It's a well-known tourist attraction that people go to to take pictures uh, like this. The reason I like this picture is because I want an image in your mind this morning of what exile truly is. I want a picture in your mind this morning of what your condition and your situation really is. And it's the fact that this picture communicates to us that your present and current situation and your present reality falls far short of what you were created for. That we are broken. And that even though the very things that we were created for seems like we could reach out and touch them, they're impossible to obtain. They're impossible to possess. So it's in this picture that we have an understanding of what it looks like that we live in exile. So forgive the cheesy metaphor, but truly we were created to soar and to fly and see far greater things than we experience here in the dust of this world. It's important that we recognize that because if we don't recognize that, then we're just going to confine ourselves to an existence where we just try to make the best of it while we got it. And that just falls far short of what we were intended for. Jesus wants us to recognize our exile because it's in that exile that we hear a better story. 
And as we come to this passage today, we come across the Shunammite woman again. We've come across her before. We came across her three chapters ago whenever Elisha prophesied that she would have a son. She took care of Elijah's needs, and Elijah wanted to bl- Elisha wanted to bless her, and so he prophesied that she'd have a son, even in her husband's old age, and she has this miraculous son. And then, as that little boy grows up, he's out in, his father, out in the fields with his father, and he grabs his head and has this severe pain, and he goes home and he dies. And the same Shunammite woman runs to Elijah and tells him what happened, and Elisha rushes back to the boy and raises him from the dead. And this woman, she describes her own life. She says, I have a place among my people when we first come across her. She says, I have, she's saying, I have a place to belong. I'm home here among my people. She's a woman of wealth. She's a woman of resources. But then Elijah comes to her in, these first six ver- in this first verse today, and he says, you need to leave here. You need to run, and you need to get out of here because there's a famine coming that's going to last for seven years. Nothing you can do can stop it can't survive this and it must be bad for him to come and tell her to leave and to go anywhere she possibly can anywhere other than here so she goes and listens to his word and she lives in exile she lives in the land of the philistines for seven years hers is a story of exile and you can imagine it's in exile that would begin to ask some of those deeper questions and perhaps that's the purpose of exile is there a place for me will what i lost uh, will what I have lost ever be restored? Is there a place that I can return to? As we look at this passage, these first six verses, they actually seem a little bit out of place if you look at what comes before it and after it. Because before in the previous passage, you have the king of Syria that lays siege to the kingdom of Israel. You know, these big, uh, uh, these big warring kingdoms and stories of such before it. And then after it, you get these kings that are actually anointed to replace the previous kings and the, the shifting of power in the region. But in these six little verses, you just have this little story about this Shunammite woman. Why is it here? Well, her exile actually points to a bigger exile. Whenever Israel was in exile in Babylon, they actually sat down and wrote First and Second Kings that we are reading. And they included these stories as they remembered their history, asking the same questions that the Shunammite woman was, would have asked in the land of the Philistines. Is there a place for us? Will we ever be able to return home? And will what we have lost ever be restored? It's a story of hope that's supposed to give hope to exiles. But if it's supposed to give hope to exiles, it's also supposed to give you hope because you too are an exile. Her story of exile points to Israel's exile, and Israel's exile ultimately points to the true theme of exile in the biblical story. That if you really want to understand the gospel, a big part of it is the fact that exile is at the very core of the story of the scriptures. Now, as we try to connect with this passage, it's kind of hard to, just at face value, because one, we, uh, we probably have far more in common just by being Americans with Romans and Babylonians and Egyptians than we do... Shunammite widows. We live in the most powerful country on earth. So the closest you know, we get to uh, famine is you know, the cost of beef goes up. Our dairy products go up. But we still have the ability and the resources to overcome it. We don't constantly face the threat of being displaced because we don't have the technology to overcome you know, the uncertainty of nature. So it's harder for us to connect with it. So how is it that this story can speak to us in our exile? If we live in exile, then how do we experience it? And how do I know that I live in exile? I would say this. The story of the Shunammite woman 
the way she experiences exile is the same way that we experience it. Is that when uh, we come to that place where we realize that all of our resources and all that we have and everything that we are is not enough to stop or overcome the destructive forces in this world that are far more powerful than we are. Our story is her story. No matter what she owned, there was a famine coming that was going to take all of it away. And for us, it's the same way that we recognize that no matter what we own, deep down we know that we are going to have to pay the piper at some point. And no matter what it is that we try to accumulate for ourselves, we experience exile the same way she does. So if you think about your own life for a second, you have a season of you know, blessing at work. You get a promotion, you get a raise, whatever it is. You get more stock options, or you are blessed in the stock market. And you accrue more resources. But in the back of your mind, you know that all of this is hanging by a thread. You enjoy the blessing, and yet you still feel so uncertain and so unsettled and so insecure. Because your company could go belly up like Enron tomorrow. Or we think about the fact that uh, you have an amazing night with your spouse. Night of intimacy, a, a date night that you've looked forward to and you really connect And it's a wonderful time together, and yet you wake up the next morning, and yet you still feel a part of you that is so unsatisfied, so lonely, and you want more than what they could possibly give you. As we think about the fact that we have uh, children, we have this moment where it's, uh, goodness, uh, what more beautiful and profound moment could we experience as parents as children are born into this world, and yet we know they're born into a world that we cannot ultimately protect them from. We just simply do our best, but we recognize that our time with them is short. There's forces at work in this world that are far beyond our capacity, and the clock is ticking. Or the person that tries to eat healthy, but we know that one of these days you're going to sit down with the doctor, and he's going to say, we need to talk. I know you've tried to stay in shape and stay healthy, but we found something. Or that feeling that when you leave uh, for work, or you watch your spouse sleep for work, that feeling where you think to yourself in the back of your mind, will this be the last time I ever see him? Will today be the day? We have this tension of living with these desires, these incredible cravings for blessing, for longevity, for satisfaction, for joy, for connection. And yet, the fact that we live in this world, we know that everything has an expiration date. Everything will come to an end. And death reminds us that no matter what we try to accumulate or possess or experience, in the end, there are forces in this world that will eventually take all of it away. All of it away. How hopeless is that story of exile? We feel this tension that we can be searching for something that the world simply cannot offer. Where does that tension come from? Well, it comes from the very beginning of the story. That's why the gospel is about exile and restoration, because the very beginning of the story is about exile with Adam and Eve. If we think about their story for a second, you have Adam and Eve who were created with the most perfect relationship. There's no fear, there's no shame, there's no ugliness between them, there's no hatred. There's nothing but a growing love, respect, and satisfaction with one another. They were given all of creation. Nothing fought back against them and did exactly what they wanted it to do. And God says, I give you all of creation because you are the kings and queens of creation. 
And they walked and talked with God each and every day. All the best days of your life do not add up to a Tuesday afternoon in Eden. They lived in such perfection because they were created for it. It's what they were created to experience on the day-to-day, every second, every moment. But then when sin enters into the world, it fractures everything. All of it's broken. And they are pushed out from where they truly belong and they exist as exiles in this world. And so you have this woman, Eve, who used to get this satisfaction and joy from her husband and when she would long for the love that he would have for her, it'd be unrequited because he'd be busy with other things. Or this experience of bringing new life into this world is now cursed because it brings pain and sadness along with the fact that we also too, the reality that we are bringing new life and the joy that that happens to bring us, we also know that we're bringing new life into a bitter and hard world that's unpredictable and uncertain. And that same world actually wages war against Adam. It used to just be the red carpet for whatever he wanted and now it fights back. And the only thing that he has anything is because of the sweat of his brow. Exile is a story of tremendous loss. But when they left the garden, the desire for the garden never left them. And so they look for it in every job, every relationship, every marriage, every opportunity to try to get back what they lost. And then imagine for a second, you have uh, Adam and Eve hearing the news that within the second generation out of the garden, you have one of their sons killing another one of their sons over an argument. And can you imagine the regret that they had to feel when they heard that news? You have two parents that had everything. There was nothing that was imperfect. They had everything they could possibly imagine, and they blew all of it. They gave all of that up to exist in a world where they would desperately try to get back what was lost. And even if they got a little bit of it, they eventually realized that no matter what, death would come and take away all of it from them. The story of the Bible begins with a story that is hopeless because it's a story about not being where we were ultimately created to be. And we desperately need to be restored. We are that Shunammite woman longing to come home. Adam and Eve's story is our story. And G.K. Chesterton, I think, has one of my favorite quotes. He says, You can hear that sublime sense of loss that's in the sound of all great poetry. You can hear the cry that out of the very depths and abysses of the broken heart of man, that happiness isn't just a hope, but also in some strange manner a distant memory, because we are all kings in exile. If you think about our culture for a second and look at the top 40, we have songs all over the place, songs about finally finding this person and this love that never makes us look anywhere else for satisfaction. This person is perfect. Yet the person who wrote their song is like on their third marriage or their third significant other that year. Or the fact that if you look at a bookstore, we have the biggest, most oxymoronic reality of any bookstore is tells, you know, volumes about our culture. And that the biggest section of any bookstore is actually the self-help section. That everything that we, we try to have this blessing and yet what came before it didn't actually work. So we need more and more self-help books. More and more self-help books. Desperately trying to get back something that we never will. We carry the memories of our first parents within us. That's what it means to be human. That we were created to be royalty in the presence of God, and yet we live in the reality of this broken world. We are all kings in exile. 
And we spend a lot of our time ignoring the reality of exile. And we have the money to ignore that reality. We have the resources to distract ourselves from that. Which is really why I've kind of spent so much time talking about it, is because we actually need to recognize our estate, that we do not live where we belong. Because the problem is, is that I... I think we often use all of our time, energy, and resources living in a way as though we are going to live here forever. And we establish ourselves here, and the problem is, you're going to have to give all of it up. Exile is good news. Because it was good news for the Shunammite woman. And it's good news for us. If you think about Elisha coming to her and telling her about this, this famine that's coming... The exile that she experienced, although it was hard, it was a salvation to her because it saved her life. It was God's grace to her to preserve her and protect her. And in Psalm 78, the psalmist actually retells the story of Israel when they're in Babylon. Retells the story of their exile. That there's more at work in the brokenness of this world than just simply the hopelessness that exile creates. There's another story that we hear that's at work in this world, but we only really come to understand it in exile. And the psalmist says this in Psalm 78, that whenever God slayed them and sent them into exile, then they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again, and they remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. It's in exile that when we realize the reality of our situation that we truly become ready to hear all the great things that God has done. And that's what we see in the rest of our passage this morning. So how is it that God offers hope and restores those in exile from what we see? Well, if you look at verse 4, the story picks back up. The Shunammite woman journeys home. After seven years, the famine's over, and she realizes that all of, her, all of her wealth, all of her possessions, her land is gone. She's destitute. It's been, um, it's been confiscated by, most likely, the king. They, she abandoned it, so they took it from her. So her only hope is to go back and to plead with the king for mercy that he would give back to her what she lost. Excuse me. And so, I want you to hear in the rest of this story, I want you to hear the beauty of this story that God orchestrates. I want you to read between the lines and see God working in exile to bring hope and restoration. Because the Shunammite woman is not the only one that is experiencing the exile of this world. Because we have two more characters in the story. The first is the king of Israel. We find him in verse 4, sitting on his throne, listening to person after person come to his throne room putting their cases before him and asking for his verdict, asking him for justice, asking him for leniency, waiting for what it is that he will rule on. But yet in the midst of this, none of this is on his mind because he turns to Gehazi and he says, Gehazi, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. That's a really strange question for two reasons. One, the king would have already have known what Elisha had done. You can read throughout Elisha's whole story that he was known internationally for being a man who raised the dead. It's not like he had this little quiet ministry. He was well known. The king would have known these stories. But at the same time, he tells him to tell him all the great things that Elisha has done. This is the same king that a chapter before, that years before, had actually put a bounty on Elisha's head. He said, I want him dead. And then now we have him in this situation, looking at Hazi and saying, 
Tell me all the great things that Elijah has done. What happened to get him to that point? What happened to where he would be ready to hear? I'd imagine that after 10 years of what has happened, we need to, under, we need to understand what's happened before this point. We need to fill in the backstory because this king has had a really rough 10 years. In the previous chapter, the king, the king of Syria sieges Israel. And as this king, in this passage today, was walking out among his people, he realizes how bad this siege has caused his people to live, the, the depths to which they have sunk to to survive, and that they are actually cannibalizing their own children in his kingdom. But then after that situation is resolved, he goes through seven years of a famine. And I would imagine at the end of these ten years, he has all of these people coming before him, but it's not on his mind. Why? Because he's, he's tired and he's exhausted. And I imagine that he's exhausted after ten years of trying to have some semblance of power, some semblance of control, that even for all of his wealth and all of his resources, there are forces at this, in this world that were far more than he could overcome. And he watched all of this happen and all of this fall apart around him. And he could do nothing about it for all of his privilege and power and wealth. And it's in that moment where he finally says, Gehazi, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Tell me all the great things. Remind me of the hope of what God has done. Give me hope, Gehazi. But then you have, of all people, to further the beauty of the story, you have our second, our third character, which is Gehazi. And he's experiencing an exile of his own. If you remember from last week, whenever Naaman was healed by Elisha, Naaman left and then Gehazi followed after him and went to actually seek his own blessing, came up with a lie so he could steal from Naaman and he got a few resources, a little bit of money, and then he's found out by Elisha. And Elisha said, this is a wicked and sinful thing that you have done. Naaman's leprosy will now become your leprosy. And he pushes Gehazi out of his presence out of the presence of God through Elisha. And now he goes out into a world that's different because now he's in exile socially among his own people. And he doesn't belong there anymore because he's a leper. And yet, here he is in front of the king. God is not through with Gehazi yet. And when the king turns to Gehazi and says, tell me all the great things, he begins to tell, he begins to tell the king, about the resurrected son of the Shunammite woman. And he begins to tell her about how Elijah gave life to the dead and he gave life to the Shunammite woman's son. And lo and behold, who comes walking in? The resurrected Shunammite woman's son comes into the king to make his case to have everything restored to his mother. And Gehazi says to the king, he says, My lord, the king, that's him. That's the boy. That's the resurrected son. And in his testimony, the king comes face to face with the very living, breathing power of God in flesh and blood in that resurrected son. The very evidence that death does not have the final say in this world, but death has met its match in the power of God. And that boy that just walked in is evidence of that power as a witness and a testimony of the great things that God has done. And he's moved in such a way that he restores everything to the Shunammite woman, and he says, I'll give you back all of your land and everything that we made these past seven years. It's all yours. 
every cent of it. So is this just a story of coincidence? Or is it something more? Here you have a story of three individuals experiencing their own exile of this world. And yet it's where God shows up and orchestrates a far more beautiful story. But how is it that God actually brings restoration to these exiles? What is it that actually brings restoration to them? Is, they, is it just simply them being at the right place at the right time? Or is it something more? Well, you actually see God's power come in. And the reason he orchestrates this, these circumstances to be just the way they are is that so his power could go out and bring healing and change and restoration when the testimony about his power begins to be proclaimed. That when Gehazi begins to bear witness and testify about the resurrected son, that is how God uses to restore the Shunammite woman, to restore the king, and to restore Gehazi. It's through the power of testimony that God restores out of exile. It's in Gehazi's testimony that it's not just him giving a history lesson about what happened. It's in testimony that we actually recognize that as we, bear, as we testify and witness to what God has done, the power of God shows up in and through that testimony. That through Gehazi's testimony, the Shunammite woman who was a widow and had nothing was completely restored. And then through the power of Gehazi's testimony, God works to change the heart of the king. We have to remember who this king is. He was the son of Ahab and the grandson of Omri. Together, they were three generations of a mob family that was running Israel, stealing and killing and from their own people. And yet, in the power of Gehazi's testimony, after three generations of stealing, we finally have, through his testimony, the king becomes the king that the people need. And he begins to participate in God's story instead of warring against it. And through the power of Gehazi's testimony, it's not the final story, it's not the final say in Gehazi's story. He's not just remembered as somebody who tried to seek his own blessing, but as he began to bear witness and testify to the resurrected son, it was an opportunity for him to be a blessing to another. Do we understand the power of testimony? We see all of this power moved and all of these situa- this whole situation, all of these circumstances orchestrated by God to bring these three individuals to an exile so that the testimony of what he has done might go out to those who long to hear all the great things. It's no mere coincidence. It's in exile that God moves most powerfully. And it's in exile that the testimony of what he has done becomes the most precious to us. As you think about your own life, do you think of it simply as circumstantial or a coincidence? Where you are now in life, the situation of your life, the story of your life? Do you think that it's just you living in a way that's trying to make the best of your time, trying to make your life more comfortable? Or do you really believe that your life is orchestrated in such a way so that you can participate in a far beautiful story? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that there is a story that you have an opportunity to participate in that God has brought to this world? Do you believe in the power of testimony? When we were in India in November, we went to the Kali Ghat, which is the temple that's devoted to the goddess Kali. It's surrounded by a uh, brothel, 
system. And as we went there, we spent time with the children of these women who work in the system. And we spent time with the kids telling them about Jesus. And then after the kids left, we had an opportunity to speak to their mothers. Women who are relatively middle-aged and have probably been in the system since they were 14, 15 years old. Devoting their lives to this goddess, Kali, that has offered them nothing but broken, brokenness and sadness. And we needed somebody to share with them. And so I asked Sarah Parad if she would share. And of course, like anybody's reaction would be, it's like, I'll do the best I can. I don't really know what I have to offer them. But I'll just try, and she did it. She was brave in that moment, and she began to share her story. And we're in this tiny, crowded little room, and all of them are listening to Sarah. She begins to tell her story of exile. And she says, I was not raised in a Christian home. My uh, parents turned away from God when I was young, and I was raised learning how to worship a goddess. And I grew up and became a woman that gave myself and worshipped this goddess and lived a lifestyle that only brought brokenness and pain. And as she's telling her story, she had all of them. They were hooked. They were hanging on every word. She, they were watching her, and then they look at Smriti for the interpretation. And then just back and forth, back and forth, listening to this story about her exile. And then she begins to point to the resurrected son. She begins to give a testimony that the resurrected son has come into her life and began to restore what was lost. The reason I tell that story is I was watch, as I was watching this whole thing happen, I was in the back of the room by the doorway so I could see all of it happen. And I remember this profound sense came over me. of As she's telling her story, I realized that, you know what, she has a story that not probably a lot of us can relate to here. We have a story that might be difficult for some of us to relate to that kind of upbringing. Yet when she goes there, she doesn't have to explain a thing. They know exactly what she is talking about. And I thought... Sarah, all the circumstances of your life have led you to this place so that you might bear witness and testify about the resurrected son to these women that are longing to hear all the great things that God has done. All the circumstances, all the pain, all the sadness of, this, of the world of this exile began to make sense when she began to testify in that place and that time that God had orchestrated her life in such a way that for such a time as this, she might bear witness about the resurrected Son, Jesus. Is your life any different? Your life is not coincidence. Your life is orchestrated in such a way, all the events, all the circumstances, so that you might bear witness to the resurrected Son, that you might bear witness to the tes- and testify about God's power. You don't live where you live because you were the highest bidder. You don't simply have the job you do because you knew somebody or because your resume was the best among all the the ones that applied. Your life is situated in the way that it is because you have a story to tell. And in that story is power. And we are surrounded. We are surrounded by people that live in the exile of this world longing for more. Do you know how much brokenness is in this community? How much sadness is behind the pretty walls of our homes? People longing to hear the great things. And where is the hope for them? Where's the hope for the person that's next door? Where's the hope for the widow and the orphan? Where's the hope for the 
person who's downtrodden and oppressed? Where's the hope for the kings of this world? Where's the hope for your neighbor who's going through a divorce and doesn't know how they're going to make it? Where's the hope for your neighbor who's, or your coworker who's slowly losing everything? Who drowns all their sorrows every night, looking for more, longing to hear the great things? Their hope is found in your testimony. God gave the world Jesus, and Jesus gave the world you, so that you might bear witness to the resurrected Son. And in that testimony is power. Amen. That whenever you bear witness to the Son, just like in this story, you bring the resurrected Son face to face with people that are longing to hear the good news, longing to hear the great things that God has done. Next week, we're going to be talking about um, changes in the life of our church. Good changes, changes I'm excited about. And one of those changes is going to be that we would be a community that would bear witness and testify about the resurrected Son, Jesus. That we would be a community that would evangelize. Quite frankly, I would love and I pray for conversions in this church. I pray for your neighbor to begin to sit next to you or your coworker or a friend that you just met. I'd like to meet them. I'd like for us to tell them all the great things that God has done. And as I was thinking about this passage this week, I realized that I have utterly fa- I've utterly failed at this. I have utterly failed at testifying and witnessing to the story of the resurrected son. I have simply held a life raft as I watch others drown. And I don't want to do that anymore. Do you understand the story and the power that we have as we witness? As Melissa and I talked about it, we have someone in our community that I think they're raising, I think she's raising her kids on her own. We've talked to her one time. My other neighbor won't talk to me or wave at me. My other neighbor never comes out of the house. My other neighbor's never even home. So we're going to start with her. And we think that we might just invite her over dinner for a cup of tea and trust that perhaps this whole thing has been orchestrated so that we might tell her all the great things and trust that she is ready to hear and I hope you get to meet her let's pray Jesus we thank you for this story that reminds us that we truly don't live where we belong. And it's easy to fall asleep instead of keeping our hand at the plow. It's easy to make our lives more comfortable rather than to proclaim the good news that we have been given. We ask that you would make us a people that would bear witness and testify to the resurrected Son. In the gospel is power. We are a people of power because we have the most beautiful story on earth that we could possibly tell. We pray that we would be more like Sarah and we would be like Ahazi and that we would bear witness to all the great things that you have done. And we ask all these things for your glory and your glory alone. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.